0: Hello, and welcome to the Busyness Podcast. My name is Emily Austin. I'm the founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder our expectations have become greater, and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with the stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, is an attempt to compel, conflate, and convince. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? Are we setting unrealistic expectations for future entrepreneurs and business owners by encouraging them that a maniacal approach to diarising is the standard? This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed insight into the honest stories, the failures, the triumphs, the intricacies, the mistakes, the comebacks, the fuck ups from those set to make their mark, the leaders, movers, and shakers trailblazers, and game changers. We cover imposter syndrome, hiring and firing, call-out culture, anxiety, global growth, daily routines, and knowing when to quit, choosing the best in the busyness to help you cut through the noise and optimize your success. Hello, and welcome to the final episode in the first series, episode eight. I have the absolute joy of chatting to inspirational powerhouse Nicola Elliott, founder of Neon. For those of you who've been living underground, Neom is one of the first true wellness brands, so far ahead of its time that Nicola mentions it took seven years for people to start to really understand what they were trying to achieve at the business. After spending seven years working 60-hour weeks as a journalist, Nicola began to feel impacted by the stressful pace resulting in low mood, low energy, rising stress levels and lack of sleep. As she looked around her, she realized her friends were experiencing the same thing. In kick-starting her own well-being journey, Nicola trained as an aromatherapist, creating her own effective pure blends. These first products grew into the brand we know and love today some 20 years later. We talked about educating customers, building a brand with staying power, how to get customers to buy the products the second, third and fourth time, why the wellness industry has lacked diversity, when the right time is to raise money and how to raise a family alongside a full-time job. We also talked about why passion is at the heart of this incredible entrepreneurial story. I'd love to dive straight in um, and talk a little bit more about what you were doing before you started the business and sort of how, how the idea then, then came about as a result of that.
1: Okay, so um, I was a journalist for nearly 10 years before I started Neon and um, I worked on uh, a lot of the glossy magazines. So Glamour, Marie Claire, InStyle, Heat, actually when that was kind of at the height of, you know, uh, of everyone's interest and they were brilliant times. I loved it. It was fantastic. And actually latterly in my career, I did covers and celebrities. So I spent a lot of time, London, New York, LA and, um, and so lots of crazy stories with lots of crazy people and it was brilliant but um i think that lifestyle ended up taking kind of a bit of a toll on my health and you know i can't blame me all on the job i think a lot of it was to do with being 28 living in central london when i wasn't on the plane i was partying just you know having the normal fun that a 28 year old would have i'm sure um but unfortunately it just led me to having pretty bad anxiety and i think And by the way, that was in the days where we didn't really use that word. It wasn't a thing. So I don't even think I labeled it as that. But I remember thinking, I'm feeling, you know, totally below par here. And my mum said, you don't look after yourself at all, you know. You don't eat well. You don't exercise. You never see the light of day. You're always on the plane. There's no concept of wind down. Just basic stuff, right? No kind of... um, there was no real car crash or real obvious thing that I'd that I'd done to sort of bring on the this this kind of sense of yeah of of anxiety and and latterly panic attacks. But it was just about not looking after myself and and I think um that's that kind of kick-started me into thinking I just need to go back to basics here and yeah, look after myself. And spent a year really Turning over stones and seeing what worked for me. And during that time, retrained as a nutritionist and became really interested in exercise and had a bit of a life overhaul. And as part of that, started being really interested in essential oils. There was a little crusty health food shop on the end of my road in Islington, which, you know, in those days was all you got. There was no Planet Organic or Fresh and Wild or anything lovely. You, you know, it was kind of a bag of, organic carrots outside of, with dust on them and some really, you know, heavily diluted essential oils in the store. But it, it, it was something that I became quite interested in and blending the oils for not only me, but my my sister at the time was having real trouble sleeping. My boyfriend at the time was training to be a sports teacher and he'd come back and he had no energy. And I just remember looking around and thinking, gosh, those are sort of the, those are the pillars of your wellbeing, you know, having sleep, being able to manage your stress, having an energy during the day and happiness, you know, having that sort of balance, I suppose, on your mood. And I think realizing the importance of that, being able to define well-being via those sort of four pillars, which has now become absolutely integral to Neon. That was sort of the start of, you know, my love of essential oils, my love of, you know, an understanding and the importance of well-being and the definition of it. And so there was no big moment, you know, after that, I kind of got together with Ollie, my business partner, in a business capacity. You know, we had these aspirations of starting a beauty brand that would be all about well-being and, you know, would be powered by only natural ingredients. Not necessarily because we, you know, as opposed to latterly the clean movement didn't want all the kind of potentially harmful or filler ingredients in, but because actually the natural ingredients were going to really make the difference. Um but we couldn't afford that, you know. We we couldn't afford to start the biz- the, the beauty brand with 150 skews or even 50 skews. Um when reality sort of struck, we had 15 grand between us. And when you're working on MOQs for a beauty brand, that really came down to like four products. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we started with four candles. Um, because actually we felt that was the most powerful. Story we could tell, you know, at that point, 97% of candles in the UK and the USA were made of paraffin wax and scented with synthetic fragrances. Um, and so there was this opportunity for us to create something that was natural and didn't only, you know, produce a sort of healthier alternative, but also could work as a proper well being treatment within your home for you and for your family. So that was sort of the, the start of it.
0: And was that kind of language being used? I mean, from what you said a minute ago, it wasn't your sort of what we would now refer to as anxiety or um, you mentioned panic attacks. weren't weren't, um, the, The terminology wasn't there to help and describe the wellness space. Was that was that something was that language you used early on or were you like this is a candle and it has a benefit here? And did that sort of come at a late stage?
1: we didn't use that language because it wasn't understood and i think in many ways we were too ahead of the time you with the product with the concept even the understanding and desire for naturals was not there we were in the crusty green camp like ways around it and the only reason why we stuck with it was for a few reasons because I, it made such sense. I knew we'd cotton on. I also was really buoyed by the food industry because we were moving towards the understanding of, you know, what's now called cleaner ingredients. Do you get back? You, you know what I mean? Ingredients that are sort of um, untampered with for for, for what for expression? And we were understanding what we were putting in our bodies, you know, and on our bodies was. Something to be considered. So I could see that we were moving that way with food. And if we were moving that way with food, then clearly we were going to be interested in what we're putting on our bodies. But the understanding of naturals wasn't there. I spent the first few years being the only person employed by Neon going around the spas with, honest to God, two carrots, one which was organic and one which was just like a mass produced carrot, because that was the best way to explain to people what I meant by. Naturals. And you would sit there with a you know a group of 30 therapists, and I'd ha- i have to go back to explaining crop rotation. Like this wasn't in our business plan at all. Um, it was God, we're gonna have to go really a bit further back than we thought. And then and the language of well-being wasn't there. So I think in the early days, what we used to say was um a treatment within a candle, and we would talk about true therapeutic benefits. We spoke about, you know, that could help me sleep, could help me de-stress, could help the stuff that we say now. But if you spoke about well-being, it was very much, I think, you know, the the, the space of gyms, maybe not even supplements. It was that. So so the explanation was there. And then the customer knowledge was there. So I we sold mainly into spas because – the customer insight was that women would go in and they would say, oh my God, I'm so stressed, I need a massage. And we would explain to the therapists or the women on the, actually more to the um, receptionists, when those women come out and you're talking to them about how she feels, you can explain to her that this candle can, because of the amount of essential oils that it's going to emit into the room and as she breathes them in, that's going to help that feeling of de stress throughout the next month till she comes to her next treatment or sleep so it was it was a different way that we had to approach it so now it's great that the industry has widened so much that we are cutting through having to be the educators on every front
0: mm. it's extraordinary isn't it because we're talking really about the early 2000s and now the wellness healthcare. Uh, restorative care fitness nutrition industry is so enormous and has uh, swelled so much particularly in the last five years but actually even in um, even with products we put on our bodies, so deodorant being an obvious one, natural deodorants, that's only really been a conversation mainstream in the last three years about the impact of toxins going into your body. The, the food conversation, obviously, um, has existed slightly prior to that. But you know, we're talking what two thousand and four. So I mean, how long to two thousand five? How long were you having to, how long were you having to um, sort of connect the dots for people? <laughs> I knew that
1: we were ahead of our time, but I think on reflection, you know, that was quite a painful period for that reason. I thought, you know, when you spoke to someone one-on-one and you gave them the facts, they were like, oh my gosh. And they really resonated. So that gave you great hope that, you know, the, 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 the meat of your conversation with your customers was going to get more resonance. But it was it still felt like, yeah, we'd started this up to to provide these amazing products, but actually what we were doing was almost we had this kind of almost education service, and that wasn't what we banked on. And that was really, really hard. And so to your answer to your question, I think it could have been a good seven years before we started getting traction and not having to have you know, over 50% of the conversation about the brand being pure education before you got there. I mean, it still is to a degree, but nowhere near as much. I mean, nowhere near as much. Um,
0: is that is that partly because there's so much misinformation in the space that you're having to clarify? Or is it that people still just don't really understand the wellness space?
1: I think there's a few things I think Well, the wellness side of the angle uh, where the wellness angle of the brand is concerned we are still fighting the fight that wellness is a necessity as opposed to a luxury that still needs really flicking that switch we're getting we're moving there you can see the traction in that but you know there's an awful lot being done in the mental health space sort of but less so in the prevention of you getting to the point of you know, burnout or it becoming a problem. So there's still work to be done there. And a lot of that, especially where women are concerned, is about just giving them license to understand the importance of that. So we, that's a big piece of work. And then, in, and then in the natural space, you know, I still find it really crazy that friends of mine who are, you know, educated, informed, curious women could go into a major department store or their own bathroom cabinet and I'd say turn round the label of a product that you use regularly and tell me just what one ingredient means and they wouldn't be able to. And I still find that's quite bizarre that we're not catching up as quick as we thought with that it will get there but if you think back to i mean i was you know i was a child of the 80s and there was this point you're younger than me so you might not remember this but my mum brought us up on microwave meals because that was the that was she thought that was the best thing to do that was kind of that was the way that was marketed and sold to them and then there became the kind of this e102 scandal in probably the early 80s i remember it's like a additive that was in almost everything a preservative and I remember all the mums kind of, you go around the supermarket and they were flipping around these microwave meals and checking if E102 was in, was in this. I think that marked a change in the food industry where people were questioning. You know, they didn't then necessarily become aware of five other, but it was a bit like, oh, there's these things. What are these things? And, and so now I think there's just general more understanding and there's this, general sort of celebration of again call it what you want because I'm always aware that you get slurred for calling it clean or you get whatever well you know what I mean right just proper food eating and um and I think now there's kind of this 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 shift in people understanding that the basics of that are are of course going to be better for you and I think we've still not moved that way as fast as I would have liked because we just trust I suppose the big brands. Um, So I still think there's an awful lot of work to be done on that, and you know I'm always mindful that you don't want to go around putting other people down, and you know a lot of those ingredients are not harmful or, or problematic, and there shouldn't be a, a pro or a or, or, or an again, you know I, I think people this sh- we should be open for people being able to choose what products that they that they want. I'm not an evangelist when it comes to you know clean beauty at all. And, Choose through things, but I do think it's a shame that we aren't a little bit more informed, so we can at least make those those judgments based on on knowledge.
0: Yeah, if people are better educated, they can make up their own mind. But without that information, it can be frustrating if people are making you know poor poor choices. you, we talked a minute ago about the, the brand being um, sort of starting in, in 2005. Have there been challenges keeping the brand ahead and in front of the wellness market, which is now much more saturated? And is that challenging personally to, do you ever sort of think, you know, we we were here first and we've been saying this for years and other brands sort of coming in. Is that is that a, a difficult thing for you to manage?
1: Um. For the most part, it's been really helpful because, as we said before, the more knowledge about this, the more understanding, the more um, choices for customers in this space, the more it becomes a very real alternative. So actually on, on balance, it's a positive thing for us. Um, Look, sure. There's always the odd person that comes along, and you think, oh, if you were going to start a beauty brand, why the hell would you completely copy somebody else? Because that's just nuts, right? And initially, you think, oh, but actually, they can never keep up because we're we're good at innovation at Neon. So you can copy once, copy twice, copy three times, but after that, you know, we're bringing out products every month, campaigns every month, you know, brand moments three or four times a year. You you, you can't constantly be sort of in the way because that's so it very quickly becomes, you know, not really an annoyance where that's concerned. Um, But I think we don't try and be like overly ahead of the wellness market in that we aren't really for that kind of real well-being guru exclusively. You know, that probably is the realms of Gwyneth and that's cool and it's interesting and I think to a degree our women like to dip their toes in that water but our woman is a bit more of an everyday just normal woman with the challenges that you know you have and sure she'd love to be you know maybe going doing yoga on a beach at six in the morning or have the Cash, a wherewithal to have a you know an ice bath fitted in the garden and but the reality is she'd probably be just you know running around trying to get the kids to school and regardless mm. of she's probably not got a spare 20 grand to install one she's not you know a cold shower's like
0: quite an yeah so yeah cold, cold shower is a luxury if you're
1: ready I I really embrace those brands that are kind of doing things really, really at the cutting edge of wellbeing because that's cool and it's really interesting. And actually we do a wellbeing edit once a year and I call them out and go, this is cool. You guys should look at this. And sometimes we'll sell them on our platform in each January, you know, alongside or instead of just doing sort of sale activity, we we do that. So I like to, I like to sort of help those guys along, but, um, But a lot of that is probably not really right for our customer. So I think where we always stay ahead is always knowing where her headspace is at. And that evolves, you know. It's not always us dragging her forward. Sometimes we're following her. It's kind of a
0: ship. And do you you think there's become a bit of a negative... requirement for particularly young business owners, female founders of this quick fix idea that we see these crazy stories of people becoming, you know, overnight successes. We all know that social media really skews the view and people post sort of all the fabulous wins and probably not, you know, the tears in the office, um, you know, three times a week. you You are a business that has demonstrated incredible staying power growth, you've evolved, you've had to keep the business going through the social media explosion, which probably hurt a lot of businesses that weren't capable of evolving with it. Do you think that there's a um, lack of reality for a lot of young businesses now about the resilience you need and the graft and the work and the time it takes to build something of value?
1: always look at the the one outlier, whether it's the unicorn billionaire or, you know, the celebrity with the, you know, amazing body. I mean, look, like we we're attracted to those, to those one-off amazing stories. That's human nature, right? It's just playing out in a different way through Instagram right now. But we haven't done it that way. And there's pros and cons to it, you know, um, That there, there definitely is. But some of the pros for us have been, well, first of all, Ollie and I own a majority of the company still, which is really unheard of, this far into a business and this size of a business now. Um, And the other thing is I think you can launch a business really well and fast and successfully, if we're defining that as kind of going from naught to, I don't know, 10 million in a year or two for example um on social media what's difficult um what's difficult is sustaining that trust and that relationship it's like any relationship right it it, it's like it, it needs that kind of constant nurturing so I've done the thing like we've all done a million times, I'm sure, you know, bought that thing that you've discovered on Instagram and it's advertised in the best possible way. And it looks super cool and it looks super simple and it's really easy to order. And and, and of course, they've got themselves to, you know, 10 million turnover in year one because of all those things. But the real importance of the brand is coming back and buying it a second time, a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time, a sixth time. That's the real meat in the sandwich. So it's 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 a nice thing to kind of get capture those people early on but it doesn't do away with the importance of the building of trust and the relationship afterwards and that comes down to product quality and constant innovation and um newness but you know that um respect and the way that you talked it, it's all of those things which which is what a relationship's like it's kind of like going out and seeing like the really hot guy and having like the best night where you pull him but the chances that he's going to go on and be your husband you know it's not a done deal is it do you know what I mean it's still got to go through all that is he okay with the parents? Is he fun on a Sunday? Can you rely on him when you're in a bad? Like, or it's just I think brands you should think of as people in that way.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, you're right. It's like there's a sort of saying, right? That's like anyone can sell a hundred products, right? It's like it, that's not really the point. Anyone could pro- you could probably sell a hundred of anything, but actually that doesn't build a business that's viable. And I think for yeah. people in the early stages of their companies it is really just a hypothesis and you do have to be able to demonstrate that whether it's, you know, if it's a tech product, it's the, you know, daily or monthly active users. And for you guys, it's those repeat loyal customers that come back and either buy multiple products or the same thing time and time again. And and presumably from a marketing perspective, that provides an amazing word of mouth marketing strategy.
1: You know, we can put a waiting list together for a new product and have sold out of it before it's even arrived. People have not even seen or touched it, but they know it's neon. They know that they can trust us. And so they're absolutely going to put their neck on the line for, you know, that 30, 40, 50 pounds. That's amazing, you know. And, and, and there are people who might have four, five, six products in the bathroom cabinet. That's the, that's the real meat. I, I think it's, I think it's become really synonymous with that whole concept, actually, of that first and second album or first and second book. Now, you know you, you can always. They say it's much easier to do the first one, and you. They can, the 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 difficulty is doing the second one, and I think launching a business in um, online, which of course everyone's launching it digitally first. That's not like a a, a you know a, a unique a unique strategy, but I think you have to think of the second album. Very much.
0: Yeah, no, that's really good advice. Um, You guys have dedicated a lot of energy, effort, time and money, I assume, too, into diversifying the imagery used to represent the brand. So on your social media channels and um, in your campaigns, the... Wellness industry broadly has been criticized in the past um, for using quite one-dimensional imagery. I think you mentioned earlier, Gwyneth, but I think that is what a lot of people think is the kind of like white, blonde, sort of perfect image of a woman, which, which isn't, you know, as we know, representative. You mentioned earlier that sometimes you are following your customer in terms of looking and seeing what they're doing. How important has it been to you to represent the breadth of the customer base and really try and push the way that you're showing up for the customer and the reality of the customer in an industry that has been represented really by quite a narrow uh, image of of sort of the wellness woman?
1: Well, I think what has been up until this point is – understandably trying to sell a degree of aspiration and I get that you know that's what a lot of us regardless of this whole you know we want reality we do want a degree of aspiration we don't do want to look our own version of our best you know even if that's not a supermodel so so I understand that and I think you've got to toe the line between still allowing that degree of escapism and fantasy and you know, that kind of little ooh-ah sort of moment with something that is, doesn't feel so unattainable, that actually becomes quite negative to you, right? But like all things at the moment, we're just not, balance isn't sexy. People are either going one way or they're going the other way. So we try and keep that balance there. And, and I think that's, probably quite rare I think you've either you you know at the moment you seem we seem to see brands that are either hugely um glamorous and and fabulous or you know or or they're trying to bring the reality in and I think as I said that's quite sometimes quite difficult to do while still keeping that aspiration intact so um do you know what I just look at my friends and family a lot They're just, they're the people. I start with them. And I start with the conversations that I have with friends about life and things that we're all sort of struggling with. And then I try and think of Neon as being your slightly more together friend, you know? So it's not, oh, if only we could all look like, I don't know, um, Shishi Hadid, because, we're not getting there anytime soon. No, we ain't
0: doing that. No, I'm not, not doing that.
1: that. <laughs> but I do think yeah. that you want a bit of, you know, your best friend sitting, right, come on, let's sit down, have a cup of tea, tell me your troubles, let's sort this out. And you kind of to go off with a bit of advice that sort of pulls you up a little bit. And so I always think of Naomi as, if Naomi were a person, she's that slightly more pulled together friend not necessarily glamorous or aspirational yeah okay she's brushed her hair a bit more than you but it don't it's difficult for me to really articulate it but i can you know what i mean you've got that friend who you just go to and you just go oh well, she'll know she's sort of got a little bit more a little bit more wisdom on this yeah she's washed her hair and she's
0: like she's definitely it got was, milk in the fridge like it's she happening it's yeah.
1: in the fridge and i think that's where we try and be which is Oh yes, wouldn't we all love to, you know? Doesn't Gigi look good with this week? But hey, we've got milk in the fridge. We're winning, and and so I think that's our our take on reality, rather than it being, you know, I think sometimes if I'm honest, this whole fascination now with moving towards reality, you know, th- there's there's buckets of things that feel a bit a bit too messy for a beauty brand because you know, we want to see flaws and we want to see reality, but this is also something that I'm investing in personally, because I want you to pull me up a little bit, give me a boost, help me out, you know? So it's about showing flaws and reality, but it's also about giving you um, a little bit of escapism and help,
0: you know? And I think, yeah, and I think it's a really interesting sort of brand marketing challenge because as you say, you want women to be tagging the product in to elevate moments in their day and make them feel better and, you know, stronger or give it as a gift to someone to pass that on to. So, you know, in the days when I would, um, you know, lean on the product more, when I realized I hadn't maybe showered for three days, for example, or left the office or, oh, you know, even you- but you know what I mean it's like there's a there's a elevation of the product and actually you don't want to see um the flaws in a way that are a mirror back to you you want to see progression as a result of of tagging in that product and using it. um, yeah, I just don't think everyone needs
1: to do that. You know, you you will look at some people on Instagram and you want to see people who are falling in a more miserable way than you could ever imagine. Of course, we all do because that makes us feel better. But that doesn't mean everyone and every brand also needs to do that. I I sometimes, I feel very much for the high-end brands where this is concerned because connecting In that kind of real way, yet maintaining this kind of very glossy fantasy, which is their USP, is a very, very difficult thing to do. Whereas if we were lucky, I think, to always been born into um, a, a more real take on on beauty. And I think it helps that like I'm a 42 year old northern mother of two that, you know, has come from quite a normal scenario like that's my life and take on things so I don't have to think too hard to create those campaigns or those conversations although like I've got a quite a a decent filter I think just naturally on oh god we'd never say that you know we would never do that I think I think having the people having the diversity in your team that can that can just authentically represent that is helpful.
0: Mm, For sure. I want to talk to you a little bit about um, your team. Obviously, Neon, we spoke at the beginning about, um, you know, the the company obviously is is much bigger and has many more people than you did at the start. It's now a a global multi-million pound brand. Has it been difficult to retain the intimate family, close culture that was a really big part of the business at the beginning, now having so many people, so many staff, head office, et cetera, but also um, you mentioned kind of in stores, et cetera. How have you retained that that feeling of culture as you've grown Mm -hmm. and scaled the business?
1: Well, it's always a challenge, of course, Um, and you won't do it perfectly. Um, So I think, you know, caveat that. But I think, We are still, as I said, owner-operated. So there's still several conversations that people, not just senior management level, but, you know, more junior members of the team will have with me. You know, I've had three texts today from more junior people on the team because they just want a shortcut to a thought. And we might just vibe off each other and have those skill sets you know, separate to everyone else. And so there's a thread that goes between me and, you know, various members of the team or parts within teams at all times. We do this thing each week called a huddle, which where we just sort of, you know, Ollie or I'll kind of talk to stuff that's going on. Um, I think we've done a good job of recruiting decent people like we're, we're totally allergic to bureaucracy and uh, you know politics or people like that. And I think if you know that about yourself and you recruit the directors in that sort of image, and they then they then are naturally the kind of people that um, that recruit also it, because that's just the kind of crew that we have created then it sort of naturally becomes a bit more like that
0: and um what what are some of the challenges that come with scaling a business like this you mentioned that, that you felt like for the first 7 years it was a lot of kind of educating people on the space etc was there then a, a sort of quick growth spurt after that was it like 7 years of graft to really build the foundation or has it been quite steady. And, and and with that scaling, what, what are some of the challenges that you've interacted with?
1: Well, um, unfortunately or fortunately, and I could argue both cases, we've definitely grown this business brick by brick. There's been no massive takeoff point. Um, and that goes a little bit back to our conversation about, you know, the kind of unicorns come overnight. You know, you could look at our graphs and you could build a house on them. We've gone really nice and steady, growth Um, actually definitely gets as you sort of go further into the business and the traction sort of starts building the growth gets greater each year but I don't it's been a very steady sort of growth Um, but I mean god where do you start with the challenges and they're always different you know every year every growth phase they become more about people and building teams as you get bigger, for sure, because you can't do it all yourself. And that's a very different skill set. You know, I, I never would have thought I was a natural manager or builder of teams, and I would have said the same. It's not what you go into a business being an entrepreneur. with. That, that's that's just not the skills at the top of the list that most people come to the table with, yet they become the skills that are arguably the most important as the business gets bigger. So the challenge then is being self-aware enough to say, okay, I'm really good at A and B, but I am not as great at C, D and E. So how do I identify people who are, bring them in, and then relinquish the power to them to be able to make those correct decisions? And I think anyone would say the same thing. That sort of is pretty standard, Um, So I think you've got to be prepared to recognise that, recognise at the right point, try and work hard on initially getting those first decent people because they are the people who are going to then recruit the remaining 100 plus. Um, And, yeah, just become, be really aware of where you still add a huge amount of value and where that sort of line it breaks and and that that goes to somebody else and of course then the difficulty is well you know at what point is the bit can the business afford those amazing people because that you know was more of a question that you will be asking at year two and three but it's a bit by it's a gradual process unless of course you get investment earlier on and I think that then becomes a a, a very strong case for getting your investment earlier on um, not only because of time and speed, but because also you have the cash to then get the great people earlier on. So this, it's six and two th- threes for me, how you would whether you would build the business slowly, but completely own it. And obviously, financially, then you're in a stronger position and, and in terms of being able to make your own decisions, et cetera. But clearly, there's some real opportunities that come with cash and. How that can help operationally scale, um, not just by bringing in great people, but by all the systems and processes, et cetera, earlier on, rather than having to kind of iterate those as the business grows and it needs them plus can afford them, you know? Mm.
0: Did you find delegating difficult or were you confident that you knew what you were good and less good at and you'd hired the right people and you were sort of like, you know, you're here to get on with it? Or did you ever find that hard to entrust other people? With, with those decisions?
1: I'm, I'm really good and really bad in equal measures. So I know what I'm really good at and I know what I'm not good at. And that was pretty click up for me from day one. So the stuff that I'm clearly never going to be great at, you know, the operational side of the business for sure, as an example, I'm very happy to delegate that because you wouldn't want me running that side of the business. So that was easy. The creative stuff where... I know that that's I have not got a huge amount of skills but I have got that that's always a bit of a challenge because at what point do you say you guys go and have a go and and then you say actually you know that's a nine out of ten job and I could just make it a ten out of ten job you know but I think that challenge then becomes about really being able to impart your way of thinking and your vision and you know bring people on that journey with you. So they get where your head's at and they get what a neon standard is and they get the way you think about things. So it's easier for them to get to your level of things. And there's nothing, there's no greater feeling for me. In fact, yesterday, you know, I'm doing the school run and a campaign that we're working on for the back end of the year comes through. And it's been almost exclusively managed by the team with just a little bit of guidance from me. And it comes through and I see it fresh and I'm like that is shit hot that's the great that's like the that's like your kid just kind of going don't worry mum I've got this and making the dinner and Mm. you know it being better than you could do cleaning it up and that's the holy grail
0: yeah and you've got to give those people the chance right to do that and to show up for you Um, you have two children and um, you run a very successful business. What advice would you give to uh, mothers who are trying to find the right balance um, between being present in their family and obviously, you know, raising children whilst also, you know, managing managing either the launch or scale of a business? Get a good partner.
1: Can't do this without a good partner. You know, you can't... The amount of women that are doing this on the side, also doing all the home stuff, and the husband is out doing, you know, his pursuing his amazing career. I don't know how you do that. I mean, you could rope your mum in or a full time daddy, but you need the support and you need the help. You know, you need the freedom and the space to do this. You can't build a really big business with just a few hours around the kids. And I must to say that I've done that. That's not fair. My husband's done an awful lot of the drop-offs and pickups, and management of the school sports diaries and, you know, more than 50%. So it would be really unfair for me to present an image where, you know, I don't have that level of, of support. And, um, you know, that's not just at work with the team, but it's it's very much at home. It's the mental you know, when they were little and I had to go back to work really, really soon after I didn't have a mat leave. And their dad's got them. I didn't feel as much guilt with their dad having them as them going into nursery when they were once old. And I'm not saying you should feel guilt. Of course we shouldn't. But, you know, as a mum, that's what I felt. And knowing that they could be with their dad because he was making those sacrifices, and my mum, because she was making those sacrifices, made it easier for me. So I really don't want to give myself any badges for being like this kind of super multitasker, because it wouldn't be a fair representation, I don't think, or fair to other women to say, oh, yeah, sure, you can do this in your spare time whilst packing the lunches and, you know, putting the dinner on the table. I couldn't.
0: No I think it's a really honest rep- response because there is I think a lot of pressure to be everything to everyone and to be you know perfect in all aspects and actually I think it's you know um really important honest advice to people that in actually that's not a reality um and, and that you do need that help um and j- just to finish you know we we've talked about um you know the the business is growing and thriving and no doubt there are very exciting things in the pipeline um for neon we're also as a consumer mindset shifting towards uh restorative care and wellness mindfulness it's never been um easier to find information to to educate yourself about how to take better care of ourselves and it's really very much on on the agenda What's next for Neon? What can you tell me about the rest of this year and, and, and what we can expect to see from the business?
1: Well, I just think as we said at the beginning of the podcast, we, we like to, you know, at times be ahead and at times follow and support. And so the projects, the campaigns, the communication, everything will always be there. Like that friend who, you know, hopefully is the one who you can always go to and has a little bit better advice than you probably would have come off the top of your head with, but isn't so far ahead that you end up rolling your eyes and go walking away. So we've got some amazing products coming out this year that I'm super excited about. And we're doing an awful lot more with the Mental Health Foundation. Um That's our chosen charity and uh, they're cool. I just, there's an awful, it was hard finding a charity that really resonated with us that did spent the right amount of time and funds and efforts um working on the prevention of mental health issues as opposed to just the cure so there's an awful lot of stuff that we're doing with them this year which is something i'm pretty excited about clearly when retail opens back up we opened liverpool street store was our last store just before lockdown and i think it was open for like two weeks and it's the coolest Mm -hmm. store ever i was gutted so you know traction with retail in that space and you know i think everyone's like, oh her street's dead i don't think so i think it evolves it changes fundamentally it might be smaller spaces and more experiential or you know whatever but there'll be we, we're we desperate my god to get out and amongst things so brand in 360 however which way you want to call it is we know what works for us at neam and we know what's exciting and so you will definitely see more of that um Clearly, our international expansion for us is pretty big because we're, you know, we've, we've pretty much got a lot of the distribution points in the UK that we'd want. So but growing those partnerships is big um, and it's fun working with the people and the partners that are really up for it. You know, there, there's the people who are now kind of going, yeah, it's really, Neil's really working for us and Wellbeing's really working and the conversation between their customers and ours. So that's all quite a lot of fun. So. I I think yeah, Neon being just that little step ahead of you where your wellbeing journey is concerned, but being your friend at the same time is what you can always sort of expect from us.
0: Nicola, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you taking a chunk out of your day. I know you're you're very busy. I'm I'm a neon customer. Many, many of my friends are and will continue to be. And I'm really grateful that you took the time to share your story because i think there'll be a lot of people listening for whom they've followed and looked up to you and what you've achieved and they'll be very interested to hear your musings on on how that happens and will continue to so thank you for taking the time and i wish you all the best and all the excitement this year as the world reopens and we get to experience the brand in in many different ways
1: thank you emily i appreciate it really nice to speak to you